and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. I'm your host, Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, my guest is Dr. Richard Resnick, Professor of Surgery and Dean Emeritus at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Since his first faculty appointment at the University of Toronto in 1987, Dr. Resnick has been active in both collectoral surgery and research in medical education. Winner of the prize in 2010, he was instrumental in developing a performance-based examination and the development of a surgical safety checklist, which is used globally today. Dr Resnick is an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, Ireland and Edinburgh and has recently been appointed as President of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. When I spoke to him in the autumn of 2020, he told me more about his decision to explore the field of medical education. When you train as a surgeon, you come to a point in the road that for most surgical trainees is quite a profound one, and you make a decision about whether you're going to pursue a career that's, for the most part, dominated by clinical work, i.e. surgical work, or you're going to combine a career of surgical work with some other academic activity and try to end up in an academic environment. Uh, And in various countries around the world, that divide between, call it community surgery and academic surgery, is variably profound. Uh, And in Canada, it tends to be quite profound. So at at a point in my career, I was contemplating what what my ultimate landing spot was going to be, whether it's going to be in, in the community doing surgery or in an academic center doing teaching research and surgery. And I made, I actually went out into the community for a couple of years uh, after I trained to do community surgery, pay off a few debts, and plan the next phase of my learning. And that included deciding to become an academic surgeon. So having made that decision, I then need to decide, okay, so where can you make a mark? And most surgeons decide you either choose something like fundamental biology or uh, or clinical epidemiology. But at the time, uh, I decided to choose medical education, which was quite a leap back, oh, I guess 35 or 35 years ago or a little bit more than that, uh, because it was an uncommon pathway for any doctor, let alone for a surgeon. But I made that leap, and that's how I ended up having, a, if you will, a dual career in medical education research and in, in surgery. Why do you think it was an uncommon pathway back then? Well, I guess it was always it was almost axiomatic that if you wanted to become an academic surgeon, you had to do research and surgery. And uh, by research, it, it usually meant something fundamental, some a fundamental biological issue, laboratory presence, or in some cases, uh, clinical research, uh, which tracks the course of clinical patients and tries to make a difference through through those initiatives. But if you actually look at academic medical centers, they virtually all have a tripartite mission of doing research, taking care of patients, and training the next generation of doctors. And uh, so it's always been there. But the science, if you will, of training the next generation of doctors, I'd say, is a much more recent phenomenon. And people started to express an interest informal training in education only in the 70s, or late 70s. So it was 1982 when I went and did some further training. And I was one of the first doctors and certainly one of the first surgeons to come back to Canada with with more formal training in education. You've done so many things in your career, including some significant paradigm shifts. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Well, first thing I'd say, uh, say without trying to be... Um, 
uh, in any way self-deprecating. Uh, a lot of it was luck and being in the right place at the right time. And also riding a wave of augmented enthusiasm about taking medical education more seriously. And having done some formal training, I was sort of in, in the right place at the right time. The first, I guess, break I got as a young surgeon was when the registrar, who was also a surgeon at the Medical Council of Canada, which is one of our regulatory bodies, wanted to help me lead a transformation in the way we certify doctors. And and it used to be that we certified them by pencil and paper-based tests, for the most part, multiple choice tests. And there was a growing uh, dissatisfaction with those multiple choice tests and a growing expertise in the use of what's called performance-based testing. So actually seeing what uh, a trainee can do as opposed to what they can remember and fill out on a, on a multiple choice test. And so that was my first big break because I got to, if you will, lead a national effort at a very young age. So that was quite transformative, at least for, for Canada, I think. Uh, we w- became the first country to be able to mount this kind of, um, and it's quite a it's quite a tour de force to be able to do this at a large scale. And, and it's an exam called an OSCE exam, which stands for Objective Structured Clinical Examination. And so we were the first country to be able to do that for, the, for all of our graduating students. And so that, uh, I'd say that more than anything really helped launch my career. There were some others too. You were involved in the change towards competency-based medical education. Yeah, I'd say that's a more recent initiative that I've become involved with. Maybe 15, well, about 15 years ago, I became involved in that. And I first became involved by being one of the individuals to start a program in orthopedics, even though I myself am not an orthopedic surgeon, but I was the chair of the Department of Surgery, which included orthopedics. And we chose orthopedic surgery to try an experiment. And that experiment was to transform the curriculum to something called competency-based as opposed to time-based. And that's been a, a fabulous success. It's been running now for about 10 years and has been very well evaluated and very well regarded. And then when I got to Queen's and became a dean of a medical school, I had an opportunity uh, because in Canada, postgraduate education, so residents and training, are part of the medical school and they report to the dean. So I had a chance to um, accelerate that pathway of transforming training to postgraduate education for all of our programs at Queen's. And we did that over, well, the, the ramp up took about two years and we've been at it for about two years and it, it's going extremely well. When you first started the research side of your career, problem-based learning was still in its infancy and surgical simulation wasn't even heard of. Do you ever look back to what you were doing 35 years ago and think, wow, we've made huge leaps? I think we have made huge leaps, but part of the leaps we've made have also responded to dramatic environmental changes that have required us to be adapting and adaptable in in medical education. Probably the most profound of it has been the change of work work hours for medical trainees. So in my generation, I guess I'm like one generation older than our current trainees, a hundred hour plus work week was not uncommon. And now around the world, training hours in the 50-hour week range are not uncommon and often mandated by, by a government. In Canada, it tends to be about 70 hours a week. In the United States, it's 80. In the UK, it's some, somewhere in the 45 to 55 hours a week, depending on where you are. So that's been a massive change, particularly for surgical training, which relies 
not only on the ability to learn the medical knowledge to take care of a patient, but also a craft. And the craft part in particular requires repetition and lots of experiences in the operating room. So that sort of stresses in part birthed and or fueled the whole simulation environment, which I became involved with quite early on. And then we needed tools to measure whether we were doing any good. So I worked on on an examination of technical skills. And those activities ultimately led to being able to develop a research center devoted to uh, medical education, uh, which again, kind of uh, helped cascade things uh, in a positive direction. You said earlier that some parts of your career were down to luck or being in the right place at the right time. It sounds like you've had some fantastic opportunities, but there has to be more to it than just luck. Well, so I I would argue that I have been lucky uh, because I've worked at institutions who at the end of the day uh, valued the mission of education, both hospitals and universities, and, and invested So I would never have been able to start what's now known as the Wilson Center without a significant bilateral investment from the hospital where we actually opened the center and the university, which also helped support it. Sure, I pushed, agitated, advocated, and and was vocal about the fact that we used to say that our education, the education was the orphan child of our academic tripartite, but we, we, we pushed to get that orphan child adopted. And I think we did. But but there had to be a, recept, uh, a positive receptor site in the leadership. And uh, I value the leadership, the, the leadership I had, uh, deans and heads of surgery, uh, heads of hospitals, when I was a young surgeon, who, who were receptive to me pushing and saying we needed to take education more seriously. So uh, I think that there was a fair bit of luck because it was the right time. I was early on in the game. We had leaders, and certainly in Toronto uh, and across Canada, I would say, who were very keen on forging new ground in medical education or health professions education more broadly. And I worked hard at it, to be, to be sure. Uh, the other thing that I did early on, which was a huge part of the success factors, uh, was develop the training program. So I've been involved in training about 30 or 35 young surgeons uh, who ultimately got graduate degrees in education and are now educational leaders across the country. And graduate education is the engine that fuels any successful research enterprise. So early on, I was able to capitalize not just on my work, but on work of the graduate students. You wrote a recent paper where you spoke about four important lessons to be learned, and you mentioned two of those just now around graduate students and leadership. What were the other two of the important lessons? Well, I would say the, the, the first thing is the appreciation that most successful enterprises uh, in research and certainly in medical education are, are a collective effort and not a singular effort. You know, we've just celebrated the, the Nobel Prizes in the last few weeks. And although individuals were, were singled out, I'm sure they'd be the first to stand at the podium and say it was their team that helped. And, and there's no difference in medical education. And, and so I've had the luxury of working with dozens of educational scientists who are full-time educationalists coming from a very eclectic array of disciplines you mentioned you're going to be talk, talking to Jeff Norman. Well, Jeff was a, a physicist and, and became a medical educator. So they bring a richness of 
thinking of experimental design and and complement the work of someone who's a surgeon who has some expertise in education. So I'd say the collective nature to me was uh, was a major uh, lesson. And I think that the other thing that I quoted in that paper were that budgets and geography matter. So one of my roles, I saw my one of, one of my roles, it, particularly in the early days of starting off both the Wilson Center and the and the Simulation Center, as agitating for money for education. We were quite successful at, in getting hardline budgets, but also in fundraising, and and it resonated with people. Education as a broad cause resonates with donors, and we were quite successful. So budgets matter. You just can't do these these things. You can't recruit people. You can't build infrastructure without money. And and the second thing is geography. And there was an interesting anecdote about that. Uh, and to me, it's a testimony, maybe a bit to my ability to persevere, but also some of what I was talking before, some of the leadership being receptive. After I was appointed the director of the Wilson Center, it wasn't called the Wilson Center then, it was called, had a long, long name, Center for Research and Education at University Health Network. And they were renovating the hospital and they were going to put us in an old section of the hospital, was kind of in a basement somewhere, because they had promised us about, I can't remember how many thousands of square feet, but a fair, fair footprint. And I sort of went into the uh, president of the hospital's office and said, we're not moving there. Education needs to be front and center. And here's where we're moving. Well, it, it took him a little bit of a back, but he actually he was actually ended up being quite supportive. And we, we had uh, street frontage uh, for our, uh, not quite the street, but we were in a lot of high traffic area for our center. And I think it's important. Not only is it more functional, but it sends a profound message that the institution is taking education seriously. So we were quite lucky in capturing space on several occasions. I wanted to get your thoughts on mentorship, which I know has been a big part of your career. Well, as I said early on, so shortly after I came back from my training in medical education, and I also did some surgical specialty training, uh, I hooked up with one of these individuals who's an educationalist, and we had thought about starting a, a program training program in medical education. But we were thinking of it probably take two or three years till we were going to start it when one day a young intern, it's funny, we were just talking, my wife and I, about him the other day because he's now a a very well-known plastic surgeon in Toronto. And my wife is, uh, he's helping my wife with some of her uh, wrist joint issues. And he's been a lifelong friend. Uh, he walked into my office. He says, I want to do this fellowship and I want to do it now. And uh, so we said, so we sort of shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, nothing like the present. And, you know, patched things together to, to start a training program, which formalized over the course of the next two, three, four years. And as I said, over periods of a couple of decades, have had the wonderful luxury of training uh, maybe 35 surgeons now. And now you have to imagine these aren't your average student, right? These, of course, they're high achievers to begin with, but they're also surgeons by and large, or sometimes in the middle of their surgical training, very driven, wanting to succeed, not afraid of hard work, and passionate about the topic. It, you know, we I always say we have a collective dream not to train people as good as ourselves. That would be a failure. Uh, our dream has to be that we're involved in training people who are better than us, more skilled than we ever dreamed of. 
And so, so I've had tremendous, tremendous luck in training some fabulous people uh, who've gone on to be leaders in their con- various countries, the UK, Australia, uh, United States, and Canada, who also amplify any work that you think you're thinking of doing. And, and truly graduate students become an engine. So my ability to provide some mentorship and, as mentioned, people who've mentored me. Now, there weren't that many people in my discipline of medical education uh, when I started, certainly not surgeons, uh, but there were a few. It, drew, it took me down to uh, Springfield, Illinois for my training uh, because one of sort of the grandfathers of surgical education was there, and I went and spent a year with him. If you look at the history of the Karolinska Prize, Canada has always done very well. Lorelei Lingard, Brian Hodges, Glenn Regeer, Jeff Norman, yourself. What is it that Canada is doing that other countries aren't to produce this quality of researchers? Well, yeah, I'm particularly proud. Lorelei, I had the great pleasure of hiring both Glenn and Lorelei out of their PhD work to to work with us at the centre that I started. So to see them... And Brian, of course, I worked very closely with. And although he wasn't a student of mine, we were close collaborators. So you're right. We're we're thrilled that I think five or six of us have been involved in the prize right now. First of all, I think we, we've set the tone of adopting this culture that I was talking about before that would celebrate the fact that part of our mission in our academic medical schools, but of course, also our academic hospitals, education is part of that mission. Uh, So in the evolution in the last 35 years, we've seen that go from, uh, oh, well, of course it is, to a a time now where institutions are investing, taking it seriously, and young doctors are being hired for their expertise in medical education. There are some structural things in Canada which also help it align. The university has become becomes the focal point of medical training, whereas in, if you look at the UK, for example, it's not quite as harmonized. So uh, the medical schools and the universities become the focal point for undergraduate education until someone gets their medical degree. And then the trusts become the focal point and the NHS becomes the focal point of postgraduate training. And although the schools play a role they don't play as prominent a role as they do in Canada. And in Canada, the, the universities are the centerpiece of medical education. That gives us a tremendous strategic advantage because we can capitalize on joint resources, as I was talking about, and singularity of mission, where you know the mission of the NHS is to take care of patients first and foremost, and then its secondary mission is to help in the training process and, and be involved in research. Whereas in Canada, the joint mission of the universities and hospitals are all three. And although that just sounds like words, words translate into budgets and they translate into activities and they end up making a difference. So I think we've been very fortunate to have institutions across the country that have taken this very seriously, have invested and have allowed people like Lorelai and Glenn and and Jeff to have the extraordinary careers they've had. So let's talk about the prize because, of course, this is what the podcast is all about. What can you tell us about some of the specific research which led you to win the prize in 2010? Well, I think it was an amalgam of several things, but one of the things that we haven't talked about that was highlighted when I won the prize was my involvement 
in the, a project called the Safe Surgery Checklist. It was called Safe Surgery Saves Lives. Uh, the, the lead investigator was from Boston, old colleague and friend of mine, Atul Gawande. And he came to us because he knew we had been doing some work in the operating theater on checklists. In fact, it was Lorelei's foundational work uh, that it created checklists for communications in the operating room because we theorized better communications in the OR might lead to better results. So he actually wanted to borrow our checklists. And I did a little bit of horse trading at the time and said, well, it's a great project you're running, but Toronto's got to be involved as one of the pilot sites. And if it is, we, you could use our checklist. So we did a little bit of horse trading and, and, we became, and I became a co-investigator in this amazing project that developed a checklist, just a two or three minute checklist before one goes to sleep. And then a few minutes after as well. And who would have thought that actually saved lives? And this experiment was run in eight cities around the world, four in resource-constrained countries and four in, in resource-rich countries. And in both sides of the equation, it made a fundamental difference. And there were statistically less people died from surgery if you spent two or three minutes before the operating theater and made sure that all was right from a communication standpoint. So that was one of the projects. I'm particularly proud of that. Of course, the checklist now is used in virtually every center around the world. And uh, I played a, a small part in that development, but was proud, quite proud of it. I guess the other areas that were celebrated in the prize, I guess the biggest area was my work in testing, both in performance-based testing that I talked to you about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, but also in developing a tool to test whether surgeons are doing their surgery well. We've dubbed it the OSATs. Again, it was a fellow of mine who actually came up with the idea, a fellow in Australia, Jenny Martin. And uh, But then we spent 10 years studying the test and making sure that it had the rigor of bona fide test. So I think that was celebrated a lot as well during at, at the Karolinska. And what do you think the prize has done for the field of medical education? Yeah, well, I think it has a tremendous legacy because it's helped elevate the stature of, as I referred to before, this orphan child that wanted to be adopted has been adopted, but now is getting equal billing to biomedical research in other areas and uh, the realm of clinical care. So it's been tremendously important. You know, the, Kar the Karolinska carries with it so much credibility and the fact that that institution, which is really known for scientific medical research, chose to devote a portion of its funds through uh, through the donation to medical education research has been a tremendous boost for the community. And, and I guess for the career, also for the careers of those who were lucky enough to, to get the prize. But I'd say it's done more for the community than it has for the prize winners. I mean, it's nice for the prize winners, but you can imagine yourself, a, you know, a 30-year-old surgeon who's just starting a, out a career and you're trying to decide which area you want to pursue. And you've always loved to teach junior students, but never figured that was going to be able to make a difference or really be a stamp of your career. You know, seeing someone 20 years older who received a prize from Sweden and walked up that stage and, you know, with all the pomp and circumstance and, and the prestige it carries makes it meaningful and makes it real. So I think it's been a, a game changer for, uh, for those in the field. And finally, following on from that thought, 
What would be your advice to the next generation of medical education researchers? Yeah, so I, there's no question what the first message is. And, and that was a message I delivered to anybody who came to my office. And hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of young doctors have come into my office saying, well, what, what about this crazy idea? And the first thing I've always told them is, A, it's not crazy, but B, it, it'll only work if you get formal training. So I believe that formal training, and of course, there have been people who have been wildly successful medical educators who haven't pursued formal training, but many, many more who who floundered without it. And so to me, formal training is a sine qua non, just like it is in every other research discipline uh, of medicine uh, or health professions. And so that's the first thing I tell them. And I also tell them, you can't do it on a wing and a prayer. It's got to be a year or two or more uh, of devoted studies. And certainly now, I think the currency of the realm is, is a master's degree, but it's quickly becoming a PhD degree. And so it's, it's, it's sort of catching up to what other fields of research. And maybe even now a PhD is the currency of the realm. So that would be my first lesson. And, and the, the tangential to that is that when they plan their ultimate work week, it, it, it can't be off the side of their desk. It has to be their desk for a serious part of the week. And whether that's one or two or three days a week where they're dedicating their time to that, there has to be protected time uh, because clinical work will always dominate, you know, and it should, right? You can't leave a patient out there and, you know, saying, sorry, I'm busy doing an experiment right now. Uh, what you have to do is structure your time and your week in partnership with your colleagues so that someone else can look after that patient and, and you can look after the business of making the next generation of surgeons better than they are today. Dr. Richard Resnick. I hope you can join me next time where we'll hear from Professor Ronald Hardin, a world leader in medical education and winner of the prize in 2006. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>